So, Mark. Yes. I want to talk about sandworms. The best worms? Absolutely, the best worms. I don't think there's any greater worm. Imagine if you took, like, a boring old earthworm, you blew it up, like, a million times. You made it giant. And then you were like, oh, you don't burrow in dirt. You burrow in sand. And sometimes you crest out majestically with giant teeth and then dive back in. The teeth are an important part. Yeah, I don't know how sandworms got so strongly associated with lots of teeth, but I like it. So... I googled sandworm, and I went to the Wikipedia page for sandworm. I'm at a disambiguation page for sandworms. Me too, and I have to mention the Mongolian death worm. I'm sorry, what now? It is listed under cryptids on the Wikipedia disambiguation? What's it called? Disambiguation. Okay, that word sounds very made up. Uh, so under living animals, there's three, there's some fictional animals, and there's one listed under cryptids called the Mongolian death worm, which is alleged to exist in the Gobi Desert. Amazing. I knew sandworms originally from Dune, of course, where they play a great big role, both in terms of plot importance, and they're really big. Quite large, you yes. could say. Don't they choose the new leader of... They don't choose the new leader, but it is a rite of passage in Fremen culture to ride a sandworm. The life cycle of the sandworm is just so bizarre. Are you talking about the part where the son of Paul Atreides became one? That too. I'm sorry, you lost me. Well, we're talking about Dune. Still? Yeah, Yeah. Dune rules. Oh, God. Yeah, so they start out as, like, little... Like, amoeba. And then they grow into... Well, they're that little, like, almost like fish things. Jellyfish things that somehow hold all of the water on the world of Dune, Arrakis. And then they become giant worms. And that's... That do what we described. They, like, swim beneath the sand and hunt people. And they make the spice. I must not have read that book closely enough, because I am missing... This is, it like, sounds the like book. you have not read the book. I must not Because this have. is a major part of it. Wow. Because this is where they get the spice melange. You know how, like, Moby Dick is, like, 50% describing the process of whaling? Dune is, like, 50% describing how sandworms work. This must have been the abridged version. Goodness. There were a lot of pictures. Were any of them of sandworms? Is this just like a book about sand dunes that you read? (laughs) Possibly. Was it just a bunch of pictures of beaches explaining the importance of the sand dune to the environment? Tide pool ecosystems. Yeah. All of that sounds a lot more familiar. You could be right. You could be right. (laughs) But occasionally just mentioned Paul Atreides on one page for fun. In On the Trail of Ancient Man... This dude cites a Mongolian prime minister who in 1922 described the Gobi Desert sandworm. Quote, It is shaped like a sausage about two feet long, has no head nor leg, and is so poisonous that merely to touch it means instant death. It lives in the most desolate part of the Gobi Desert. So they're not giant sandworms, but they are poisonous to touch. Uh, Two feet sounds pretty giant to me. Sure, it's like big for a worm, but you can't ride it. Not with that attitude. Correct. Also, the fact that touching it makes you dead would probably prohibit riding as well. Again, not with that attitude. Anyway, this movie also has sandworms. Which are ridden. In the, like, undead underworld. Yeah, and you can ride them. They seem very Mm Dune-y. I have a feeling they were fairly inspired by Dune. Oh, I'm sure they are. Also, does he say this is on Saturn, not the underworld? Yes. Okay, just wanted to make sure that I was not crazy. But our only source for it being Saturn is... Beetlejuice. (gasps) Right. So, I don't know that we can 100% trust that. Did you know that The Hobbit references wereworms in The Last Desert, which is a reference to the Mongolian deathworm? Because I don't remember this at all. I do not recall that, and I would expect you to. Like, I read that recently. They were likened to dragons and serpents in the very far east. Like, worms, like W-U-R-M. Or W-Y-R-M. No, it's W-E-R-E-W-O-R-M-S. Weird. Which implies that they're humans that turn Turn into into poisonous worms. worms. I like that. I would enjoy that. That Verbal copyright. I would like to see that movie, please. So, should we move into all this since we've talked about sandworms? I feel like there's not a lot else we could go to. I mean, there's about 
600 more pages of exposition about sandworms in the novel Dune that we could go into. Sure, and if you want to really go nuts, start reading the sequels. Like, Children of Dune has way more on sandworms. Because that's the one where the son of Paul turns into a sandworm. Yeah, if you've watched The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, where Mandy turns into a sandworm, it's apparently just an adaptation of that book. That book is nuts. And then they just get weirder. Like, God Emperor of Dune, he just is a sandworm. Actually, I think that um, the Billy and Mandy episode is an adaptation of God Emperor, not sure. children. And then in Heretics of Dune, he's been a sandworm for thousands of years. Yeah, because sandworms are immortal, and that's why he became a sandworm. Right. As you do. I haven't been this lost since organic chemistry. Why did you take organic chemistry? Um, Josh was <laughs> briefly a biology As a one-year bio major, you see, I have... <laughs> I had so many assumptions. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is a podcast where we delve deep into the unanswerable questions. The things that we can't figure out in this life or the next. One of those main questions, of course, is, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable. It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation. Either way, we will dig in and we will see what is going on. And this week, as you may have surmised from his befuddlement, we are rejoined once more by my friend Josh. Hi there. Josh, I have to ask, did you write, and this week we're welcoming Black or did did not? It was Will. That was a typo. (laughs) Are you sure? So, Josh, welcome Black to the show. It's Black to be here. <laughs> I used to go to a comic shop where the guy who worked the cash register, I would go up and he'd be like, how are you doing? And I'd be like, oh, I'm having a good day. How are you? And he'd just go, I'm Black. And I was never sure how to respond to that. <laughs> and that's why he said it. <laughs> you made his day. So, today we brought Josh back on because I guess this is a horror-ish film horror adjacent and josh is now our horror adjacent consultant josh is a big fan of horror movies i don't know why this is me (laughs) like mama always says why would you pay somebody to scare you because it's fun so josh you are apparently now our official black movie religious movie (laughs) and horror movie consultant hey get you a man that could do all three and we did that's you (laughs) it's you (laughs) it's great to be here so we are talking of course about The 1988 undead comedy, Beetlejuice, directed by Tim Burton. This movie rules. It's so good. This movie is wild. It's so good. Have you seen it before? I have not, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, it's awesome. This movie has everything. There's a goth child wearing a veil. Oh, you're a fan Uh, of Lydia Dietz? Yes, I'm a a fan of Moira Rose in her first theatrical role, of course. Do you mean No, I fully mean... This is not Catherine O'Hara. This is fully Moira Rose. Did you go watch the Beetlejuice musical? And that's why you said theatrical? Because we meant for you to watch the movie. I was thinking of a theater. Which this is not. You would see it in a movie theater. Movies have theatrical... Never mind. I'm not going to die on this hill. I don't care that I got it wrong. It's a bad hill. I don't care that I got it wrong. slowly sinking. I don't care. It's actually just a mountain. Yes, I meant cinematic. Okay. This hill is in Jakarta. (laughs) (laughs) That's so sad. (laughs) Pour one out. All right. So we're talking about Beetlejuice. I was really excited to revisit this because between December and April, I watched every Tim Burton movie except for Dark Shadows. So I was deeply immersed in all of this. And it was fun to go back to the beginning to when it was really, really, really good. And when I wasn't watching like Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. I haven't seen that. Is it any good? No. Oh. Nothing Tim Burton has done since which one? What was the turning point for you? Well, it's weird because it's not that there's a turning point per se, in my opinion. Planet of the Apes is rancid. And oh, I forgot about that one. That's about the halfway it. point. Yeah. But I think there's still good stuff after that. I think Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is pretty good. I think Sweeney Todd is good. I liked Big Eyes fine. But they start becoming more sporadic, whereas Burton comes out the gate with this incredible run where he does Pee-wee's Big Adventure, then he does this. This is his second movie. Then he does Batman, Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, Ed Wood, Mars Attacks, Sleepy Hollow, and it's this incredible run. And then he makes Planet of the Apes, which is just unwatchable. It is so boring. And then he hits new lows 
with Alice in Wonderland about 10 years later, which made me want to scrape my eyes out with a grapefruit spoon so that I would no longer be watching Alice in Wonderland. No, Will. Tell us how you really feel. (laughs) What's funny is that's his most successful movie. Like, that's the movie of his that had the biggest box office, but it's entirely because it was a big 3D release that opened three months after Avatar. So it was like the first major 3D release after Avatar, and it's like, wow, y'all loved visiting Pandora, right? That was amazing. Well, I bet you can't wait to see what Tim Burton will do and all that. And everyone was like, yeah, sure. And then it was dreadful. Dumbo wasn't awful. Yeah, Dumbo's not bad either. I would have enjoyed Dumbo a lot more were they cast with different child actors. Yeah, the children are a menace. But I think it's possible that Tim Burton, like, does not understand children enough to be able to cast them well. I don't think he's ever met a child. I don't know. Lydia Dietz seems so based in reality. (laughs) Lydia Dietz is great, though. But yeah, so Beetlejuice is a blast, and like... Pee-wee, it was a much bigger hit than people expected. So, like, Pee-wee had made, like, $40 million, and it's an adaptation of this, like, weird late-night talk show character. So, after that, Warner Brothers is like, okay, Tim Burton, like, make something for us. And even by this point, he's kind of starting to orbit Batman, which was not a huge property at the time, but they're still not quite ready to give him that. And so, he's just looking at scripts, and one of the ones that gets sent to him is this movie called House Ghosts. Which is what this movie was called at the time. Not a terrible name. The premise is right there in the title. But like you compare it to Beetlejuice where it's a movie that you have to go kind of deep to understand what it is. The character doesn't even show up until like 40 minutes into the movie. And because his name is the title, you wind up waiting like, all right, when's this Beetlejuice fella going to show up? Whereas like House Ghosts, right at the beginning, you're like, oh, uh, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis. These are House Ghosts. Here we go. It's too on the nose. It, it is too on the nose. It's good that they changed it. They kept trying to come up with ones. At one point, Burton, as a joke, suggested Scared Sheetless <laughs> as an example of a terrible name. And then the studio kind of liked it and he was horrified. I don't hate it. It's not terrible. I would have laughed. It would be a great tagline for a movie like mm-hmm. Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. Right. So he winds up getting on board with this and he wants to cast his titular character and he of course goes for the box office star of the 1980s sammy davis jr josh do you have this is an audio medium (laughs) sorry you can't hear the face i'm making we still can't (laughs) yes sammy davis jr that's who who, who's winning here yeah how old would he have been at this time very old yeah I still think they should have cast what's his name from um The Shining, uh, Scatman Crothers. Scatman Crothers. Thank you. So Sammy Davis Jr. at this point would have been uh sixty three. So not that old. He could still do some of the physical acting. Yeah, but he would have been an old Beetlejuice. He would have been an old Beetlejuice, and it I think he was a... an old sixty whatever. Yeah, it would not have been as physical as Michael Keaton made it. Sure. Whereas Keaton at this point obviously has not yet been Batman. We've seen him in an earlier role in Mr. Mom. He's great. He's awesome in Mr. Mom, but he's kind of being slotted into those more like straightforward 80s comedy roles, and he doesn't want to get pigeonholed, so he's like, I'll do whatever. Wow. And so he's on board to do this if he could just get really weird, which is what he does. Yeah. I had forgotten how sexual assaulty Beetlejuice yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Beetlejuice is a bad man. My notes say the sexual assault is amazing. Yeah, Beetlejuice would obviously not survive the Me Too era. <laughs> he no, he does not survive this era either because the film clearly frowns upon his sexual deviance. Right. I think the movie thinks it's a little bit funny. It does. It's more of a joke than you could make it these days, but it's still definitely not like yeah. a positive. It was uncomfortable. That said, we are getting the toned down Beetlejuice wow. because in the first version of the script, which is written by Michael McDowell, who was a novelist he wrote like mysteries and thrillers and stuff like that uh in the first draft for starters it showed the car crash and like showed the maitlands drowning and like the torturousness of that it's kind of grisly and then beetlejuice is a winged demon who can change shape so he's like literally a demon and he usually to communicate to people takes the form of a middle eastern man Oh. Which I'm sure would be not problematic at all. No, not at all. Mm-mm. And he wants to kill the Maitlands and rape Lydia. Huh. Like, kill the dead Maitlands? Yes. So, mm-hmm. uh, okay. And then once he's exhumed, they don't do, like, the name summoning thing. They just exhume him. He just wanders around the town causing chaos with those as his ultimate goals. Oh, God. 
No, no, that that would have been a direction. It was not a comedy. I can <laughs> tell. Okay, there it was. <laughs> I can tell. I mean, I like that you don't see the car crash because it's more interesting to see them figure out that they're dead. Right, we get the discovery along with them. Right, because the first time you watch it, you probably don't know. It's just like, oh, they're okay. There's a moment where you're like, oh, they're just wet. That's fine. I thought they were going to be wet for the rest of the movie, honestly, once they figured it out. I mean, I did wonder, because everyone in the waiting room had had the way that they died, but they weren't, like, drowning. So I was listening to another podcast about this movie, and somebody on that posited that they don't drown because of the water on the outside of their body. They drown because of the water on the inside of their body. So maybe, like, their lungs are permanently full of water. I guess that makes sense. Okay, but shouldn't they at least be gurgling a little? I really... I'd like some gurgle action. Just don't understand the death world in this movie. You're not supposed to. Why are people blue? Why are people purple? I don't know why Miss Argentina is blue. (laughs) Yeah, because they show the way she dies, which is suicide. She's yeah. But then she's just blue. Maybe she's empty of blood. Doesn't explain the green people that are also in the room. Maybe they got greened to death? Okay. But we only see a little bit of the undead world, which is great because... It's one of the things where the more they explain it, the less interesting it would be. Like, yeah. when they draw this door and summon the little priest guy out, that's amazing. That was, it was. I was like, oh, another character. Who's he? Not going to tell us? Cool. You do get a lot more of that in the Beetlejuice animated series, which ran in the late 80s and early 90s on Fox and ABC. And that one, the Maitlands are not in it at all. Uh-huh. And that's true of most of the adaptations. For whatever reason, they don't love Barbara and Adam like I do. I loved them. They were very pleasant. They're the best. They are relationship goals. (laughs) And in the cartoon, it's mostly Lydia and Beetlejuice going on weird adventures. Like, Lydia, like, summons Beetlejuice to, like, help her pull something at school. Or he gets her involved in helping get him out of trouble because of some nonsense that he's pulled in the underworld. Okay, I just want to know, whose idea was it to pair up? The guy who tried to make her a child bride and make them a dynamic duo in a cartoon? Well, that's the thing is the cartoon makes it a lot more sort of like whimsical shenanigans than a real threat. It is weird to think about having seen the movie again as a grown-up. Right, but that's the thing where this movie is such a hit. I mean, it makes $73 million in 1988. It spent four weeks in number one at the box office. But then what that means is your titular breakout character gets commodified. He doesn't get to be as creepy and menacing as he is in the original movie. So you get the cartoon character. You get Beetlejuice's Rock and Roll Graveyard Review, the Universal Studios show, where it's Beetlejuice and the classic Universal Monsters putting on a concert. Yes, there is video. Yes, I will tweet it. (laughs) Okay, good. So... Let's talk about Delia Dietz, one of the greatest characters ever made in movie history. One of the greatest people ever to exist in any dimension. I mean, this cast is just shot through with great performances. But I take it you do want to talk about Delia Dietz, played, of course, by Catherine O'Hara. True international icon because she's Canadian and I remembered as I was about to say American icon (laughs) plays Delia Dietz who is a New York City dwelling artiste who is apparently viewed as a bad artist in the community but wants to be a real artist so badly and she is Lydia's stepmother and clearly just does not understand her at all And isn't too obnoxious about it. No. One thing I did notice at the end is she protects Lydia. She, like, pulls Lydia over when Beetlejuice is there and, like, pushes her behind her. And I was just like, oh, she really isn't, like, a terrible person. She does not understand her. She doesn't. She's stressed out because her art isn't selling. So she might be short with her, but, you know, she's not a horrible person. I think it's understandable to not understand Lydia. I could not begin to understand Lydia Deeds. I mean, love the looks. Like, that veil. Ugh, I was gagged. Can you imagine buying your child these clothes, though? Her parents had to go out and buy a giant brimmed hat with a full length of veil for their daughter because she's, like, 14. I'm just imagining Charles Deeds doing that. Like, being sent to the store with a list and having to buy that. Charles Dietz is a wonderful father, and he would have taken her himself. So Charles Dietz is played by an actor we've seen before, Jeffrey Jones. Mark, do you know where we've seen him before? Obviously, he was the Dark Lord of the Universe, or whatever it's called. <laughs> the Dark Overlord, <laughs> Overlord of the Universe. Overlord. 
technically, he's a scientist who studies extra-dimensional communication, who gets possessed by a dark overlord of the universe, who gets pulled in the vortex to Earth, along with, Mark, say it for me, Howard the Duck. There we go. Uh, Jeffrey Jones, of course, does not act much now because he is a convicted pedophile. Oh my goodness, that took a turn I did not see coming. Yep. I was about to make a fun Lizzo fact, but now I feel dirty. Nope. Uh, you can look that up. It is pretty horrifying. And I think let's... like this performance a lot. Yeah, let's not discuss him again, though, because we don't really have to. Yeah, we don't. Uh, fun fact, uh, Lizzo's song m- mentions Howard the Duck. Which one? Ain't I, one of her earlier ones. Cool. Well, that's the song at the end of the episode. Let's go. (laughs) Anyway, every week on We Love the Love, we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into its, well, I'd say it's five points, but it's generally five points that we shoehorn onto a romance that is not easily (laughs) broken down. I like it when there aren't enough romantic scenes that we break up the same scene. (laughs) Yeah, we have to be like, at the first half of the scene is, you know, how much they love each other. And the second half is a continuation of that exact point. Yep. See, with this movie, there are actually three different romances. So I was tempted to do three different sets of points and have kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. If you wanted to hear about this romance, skip to minute 47. Yeah, we're not doing that. Okay. Will would have hated that. Yeah, that would have been so much more work for me. So I just did one. (laughs) We all know how much Will loves a good point zero. All right, so we break it down into five points. Josh, as our guest, you are in charge of the five points of Tim Burton's Beetlejuice. So why don't you take it away? Thank you, Will. Now, if you've listened to this podcast before, you might know that when they're a married, established couple, it's kind of harder to talk about the romance because it's like, oh, you don't really get that build towards that togetherness, like that conflict in the middle where they're like, will they, won't they? And then they do. So the theme for today is for our married couple, Babs and... This is Barbara and Adam Maitland. Barbara Maitland played, of course, by the grand and glorious Gina Davis. (laughs) Again, this podcast is because coming just a gina davis appreciation podcast amazing if you can somehow inform gina davis of this please give her the link i couldn't think of another listener i would like more i just want to be clear because we've talked about my love life before that i am married to gina davis in a league of their own Mm -hmm. and i am dating midge from vertigo Mm -hmm. when gina davis from a league of their own dies after an appropriate mourning period I will be marrying Gina Davis from Beetlejuice. And Midge will remain the girlfriend. Precisely. Poor Midge. Midge will never die. (laughs) Well, we've already established that Midge goes to space in Vertigo 3, The Right Stuff. I forget that every time. And then, of course, she goes to space again and is also the president in Vertigo 4, Geostorm. And then she goes to space in the fifth one and is rescued by the X-Men in Dark Phoenix. How dare you? And then in this Have you seen that movie? I haven't yet. Keep it that way. How <laughs> dare you suggest Midge would be involved in it? No, actually, the next time she goes to space, it's uh, she is then hunted by Freddy Krueger, I believe, goes to space. That is a thing that happened. Yep. Cool. And of course, Gina Davis, as Barbara Maitland, is married to Adam Maitland, played by Alec Baldwin. So the theme of their relationship for this podcast is togetherness. Now, point one. When we open the movie, we come upon the Maitlands with the happy little life together. It's kind of implied that they just bought this house. Or, I don't know about just working on it for a while. They're taking a staycation. Mm -hmm. They've shut down their little hardware store and they're just going to be working on the house. So, wait, do they run it together or is he run it and she's. I see it as they're both really into like DIY. And in this small town, they run the hardware store. He probably inherited it from his father. They run it together. They live a happy life. Together. They're shutting down the store for two weeks and telling everyone they're leaving just so they can spend time, like, painting and changing wallpaper. And, and these are people I just 
fundamentally don't understand. They're so cute, though. <laughs> they are. They're really cute. But they're the really same, in love with each other. At the same time, it's they can't just keep like, their hands off each other. They're so excited to just stay home and do oh. chores. And I'm just like, what is wrong with you people? You live in the tiniest town. You should want to leave and go explore. You are so close to New York. They're yeah, so but simple. they just keep pulling each other back down onto the couch as like the phone is ringing just to like be together. It's and they're arguing about whose turn it is and about who has to go talk to Jane, the realtor in town who's been harassing them about selling their house. She said she was family? Or did she just mean that in the... I don't think she meant that literally. <laughs> like, whose sister is she? It's really weird for a realtor to try and sell someone's house when they have no intention of leaving. Yes. Jane is clearly <laughs> out of bounds and is particularly insistent that this really big house should be occupied by a family with children. And it's kind of implied at this point that Barbara and Adam are infertile yeah that was or at least struggle with conceiving right because adam does later make a joke about how they could try again to have children for the two weeks so but when jane first says that there's a look on barbara's face that's kind of like this is something that that is not necessarily what she would want Mm -hmm. right so they are just living a happy life together together like adam has to go down to the store to pick something up and barbara's like i'll go with you they're like driving down the street together he should be walking they are terrible for the environment (laughs) you know what would also happen if they walked they would stay alive why is he walking to like half a mile that it takes but then they wouldn't be house ghosts oh okay yeah they do have to get to the scared sheetless phase of their life or I love afterlife. That they actually put on sheets at one point. They're like, that look, was we're ghosts. This is what we have to masterful. do. We're just cutting some eye holes and some sheets and we're just going to wear those. If they can't see us, we'll move things. But because it's Delia Dietz, icon, they are designer pattern sheets that cost $300 that they cut holes in. These are very corporeal ghosts. They are, which I like. Yeah, it's interesting that they can just move stuff. Right, but they can also mess with their bodies in weird ways. The fact that they can yank off their heads or... Stretch off their faces. Yeah, put eyeballs on their hands. Gross. They're weird. I like how weird they are, and I like how tactile it is. Like, it doesn't necessarily look real, like, when they're stretching their faces. And by that, I mean it doesn't look literal, but it looks real. You can feel like that is a thing that someone made. Mm -hmm. Which I think is one of the places where Burton ultimately goes wrong is he gets so deep in that CGI nonsense that, like, Alice in Wonderland, you're watching it, and you're like, none of this matters because none of this is real. Whereas in Beetlejuice, like, you've got the creepy snake thing attacking them, and you're like, oh, that's a real creepy snake thing. That's messed up. Yeah, it's not supposed to look real in the sense that it looks like something that would actually exist in the afterlife. It's supposed to look real in that it is really there in the room. And it's a real threat. Yeah. And that's one of the things I like about this movie. And it's a bummer if you read interviews with Burton from the last couple of years. He talks about looking at these early movies like this one, like Scissorhands, and being like, yeah, I hate looking at all that stuff because it doesn't look real to me. And we're like, oh, so you prefer the CGI nonsense mush to this, and that's a huge bummer because these movies are so much better. Yeah. Anyway, we should probably move on to point two. Josh, continuing your theme of having themes. I like What themes. is point two? So they drive down into town. So at point two, they die together. Isn't that beautiful? So they're on their way back from the hardware store, and and they're driving through the little covered bridge, and they swerve to avoid a dog. Which you should always do, never hit a perfect animal. I don't know, if they had just driven over it, they would have lived. But the dog would be dead, and... Or they could have just walked to the store, (laughs) saved on gas, (laughs) saved the life of the dog, and the lives of themselves. And they could have petted the dog! I'm just saying, in the actual situation that they were in, they would have lived if they had driven over the dog. It's weird that this town has a covered bridge still. (laughs) I love it. It's so cute. And it gives such a particular vision of what this town is. It gives it such a vibe. It makes you want to have a model of it, because it's just a cute little town. And they swerve to avoid the dog, and they crash through the side of the bridge, And then they're, like, on the edge of one plank. The dog is on the other one. Because the dog not only caused them to go through the wall of the bridge, the dog then murders them by getting (laughs) off of the plank so that they overbalance and they fall into the river where they drown. The dog is a killer. Yeah, the dog made direct eye contact before stepping off. It wanted them to know they're a killer. The dog is, like, a little 
kid with a cookie jar who like is looking at you and is trying to like do the Jurassic Park thing where if you move very slowly, you won't notice. But it's the dog and he kills them. Maybe the dog is possessed by Beetlejuice, the winged demon. I don't like you invoking the winged demon because that suggests that he is also the Middle Eastern man. Oh, I forgot about that part already because I am pushing that down. Point two, they die together. Point three. (laughs) Point three, cut to the house. The Maitlands walk inside. They are wet. And they are a little confused when they discover that they don't appear in mirrors. They Adam discovers the handbook for the recently deceased. And they don't remember the actual process of getting home. And they can't leave their home because they go to Saturn. Where there are sandworms. Sandworms, yes. And time is different on Saturn, apparently. Because it spins at a different rate than Earth. Because Adam goes first, is standing on the giant desert, and then in movie time is pulled back in like one second but then gina davis barbara when she pulls it back is like you've been gone for three hours and it's clearly freaked out they don't know what's going on and it's upsetting this is the one time they weren't together and she was very 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 upset so they start figuring out what to do they're living as ghosts and they're trying to figure out how that'll all work reading the manual they have so much time why don't they just try and read the manual every time they get bored and are just like giving up and i'm like you have eternity it reads like stereo instructions yeah adam keeps trying he can't figure it out but it's at this point that the deetses arrive yeah so jane with the house apparently vacated is able to sell it and she sells it to the family that she referenced at the beginning of the movie a nice family from new york with a kid and how long do you think she waited to put it back on the market? I mean, who knows how long anything takes in Jane this movie. is a monster. We cannot track the passage of time because... How is she a... Mo- I'm just saying, if you ask me that that dog had to belong to anyone, it was Jane. She was too bent on selling that house. So Jane- wait, you think Jane sent the dog to murder them? Yes. Jane is a real estate agent. Yes. They are dead. You don't have no one not- to take over the house. How is she a monster for them selling the house? You're not seeing the picture. One, she was much too eager for them to sell. Two, when she came to the funeral, she said, yes, we were family. No, they weren't. She's telling lies now to make sure that she throws people off the scent. She would never have killed them, except she did by invoking the dog Hitman. So it's hard to track the passage of time because (laughs) the Maitlands can't track the passage of time very well because they are eternal now, so it's all meaningless. But the Dietzes move into the house. Delia Dietz is immediately like, this place is horrifying and disgusting. We need to remodel all of it. They move in with their gay interior designer? Yeah, they bring Otho with them, which kind of tells you everything you need to know (laughs) about the Dietzes, that Delia won't leave New York unless her designer slash muse comes along with her. Slash mentor? Yeah, they're going around doing the spray paint thing where you spray paint the color that you want to paint the wall, but Delia is just spelling out the color in the color, so she, like, writes out mauve. Yeah, that's one of the best moments, is when she just spray paints the word mauve onto a wall for no reason. It was beautiful. And at this point, the Maitlands are working together because they don't want somebody else to come in, so they're trying to scare them. Well, they want someone just like them to exactly. move this in. Is, right. This is the house they spent their vacations building. So as Otho and Delia are going around, they pull open a closet and they gasp, and we see that Barbara has hanged herself in the closet, and we think that they're gasping because, like, wow, here's a lady hanged herself. And instead they're gasping because the closet is too small, because they can't see her there. I mean, it was kind of tiny. They also make fun of her wedding dress. (laughs) Yes. Which is very sad to watch, because she's there. In all this, Barbara and Adam go to visit their caseworker, Juno, played wonderfully by an actress who is on her Wikipedia page best known for playing Juno in Beetlejuice, which was interesting because it's a very small role. It's a great role, though. It's amazing. Yeah, Sylvia Sidney. There's not a bad performance in this movie. There really is not. No, not at all. Even the, like, 
man who is smushed by a truck and thus moves around on hanger bringing papers between people is giving a great performance. I love the touch that the hallway for him is just <laughs> wide enough for him to go through. Like, nobody else has that job. But it also seemed like there was a full system of roped people coming around the office. Yeah, but most of Whether the other people had were, been hanged. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, we have no idea how long he's been working there. I guess since the invention of the automobile, but... They just realized that they could save on some space by using him and him alone. So Barbara and Adam are trying to scare people out of the house. This is when they put on the sheets to try to scare Delia and Charles. But Lydia, their daughter, played by Winona Ryder, snaps a picture of them. Because she's found the copy of the handbook. The handbook and thus is able to see the Maitlands. She knows what to look for. And but even before that, she was able to see them in the upper window. Because she, she said most live people don't see the strange and unnatural. But, but I she, am strange and unnatural. Yeah. Unusual. Thank you. It's, unusual. Yeah. The handbook says that living people won't see, not can't see. So Lydia being obsessed with death as she is. Again, that veil. Oh, God. Gorgeous. So Lydia's trying to tell people about the ghosts. Delia is just waving her off like, yeah, sure, they're ghosts, totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. She looks exactly like the kind of child that would lie about seeing ghosts, so again, I understand where Delia is coming from. Right, and Delia's like, just please don't bring up the ghost stuff when these New York artsy people come up because I'm trying to make them want to come here, and they don't need to hear weird stuff about the supernatural. Yeah, because there's an idea floating in the husband's head that he can basically buy the whole town and turn it into the art center of Connecticut. So all these people come over for dinner, and the Maitlands are ready to unleash their big scheme because they already tried to talk to Beetlejuice once. They've gone to see him to seek his help, but... but he sexually harasses Barbara, so Repeatedly. they're like, maybe we shouldn't deal with this man. Probably not. So they skedaddle, and they're like, we can take care of this ourselves. And that's when we get the Deo scene. The best scene in the uh, movie. <laughs> I knew that it happened in this movie. I didn't understand the context. Seeing it, flawless scene. Like, beautiful. <laughs> It's incredible. So they possess the Dietzes and all of their dinner guests and make them sing the Banana Boat song and dance along with it. And it's great performances by everyone in there because you look at them, they have these horrified looks on their faces but are 100% doing the dancing. It's a weird mix of face motions too because sometimes their faces get sucked into the possession and are like dancing along like when they're first noticing and then you see the dawning horror of... It's all in their eyes. Yeah. Back in college, I once did this piece where these two actors are putting on performance but then they lose the scene and so their bodies are still doing all the motions of the scene that they're doing but they're both talking to each other like what is going on i don't know i guess i'm reaching for you here and and so it was it was watching them do this i was like they make it look so easy but it was so hard having to be like i don't want to be doing the things that i am doing it's great it's a great acting scene i love and it's just hysterical but it does not work no the artsy people are just like this is amazing we need to monetize it so they're like great you can uh, get these ghosts to do more of this we can bring people out here they'll love to see the ghosts it's I- like an amusement park <laughs> so they're like lydia bring the ghosts down we want to meet them and lydia's like no they wanted you to leave and now they're sad it didn't work they don't want to be treated like circus animals to be brought out and trotted around for other people to make money surprisingly enough so now we've got some tension where the maitlands are locking themselves up they're trying to avoid the deets entirely and this is when otho decides to seance them yes so this is point number four point number four they summon and defeat bj together Well, they don't summon Well, they don't. Lydia Lydia summons them to save them. And then there is a glorious fight. The Avengers could never. A beautiful coordinated fight to defeat Beetlejuice. To say his name, I guess, because that's also how you disperse him? Dispel. Yeah. Yeah. It's summon and to banish. Banish. (laughs) Quite simple. Kind of like how it's like aloha, aloha. Yeah. So they work together to defeat him. 
So, Otho, the interior decorator, is like, look, if these ghosts don't want to come out on their own, we'll make them come out. I, of course, have studied the supernatural, but he also found the handbook for the recently deceased, and he plans to combine that knowledge to summon the Maitlands and get them to do what they want. So they haul out their wedding clothes and have a seance. But somehow the seance is killing them? They did mention earlier that there was the Room of Lost Souls. Yeah, who are exercised. Who are like the dead who are extra dead. They're, they've been exercised. They, yeah. yeah. So, they, so I guess he didn't, re- I guess Otho didn't realize that when you summon them, it kind of just exercises them. That's what the full spell was. He did say he didn't really know what he was doing. Right. It so. becomes clear very quickly that Otho does not understand what he is doing. Yeah. And so they start to decay even as they rise. And Otho doesn't have the power to stop it. So that's when Lydia goes and summons Beetlejuice in order to save the Maitlands. And he previously had tried to get her to summon him. There's a great bit of charades where he's trying to get her to figure out his name. It took her way too long to figure it's funny, out though. Juice. <laughs> it's Beetle well, drink? You beetle get to breakfast? the point where you're just like... Orange beetle? Girl, it's juice. <laughs> So she summons Beetlejuice in order to save the Maitlands. His price is that he wants to become living again. And he tells her that in order to do that, he has to marry a living person. Of isn't course. That, isn't that the plot of The Corpse Bride? No, because no. in The Corpse Bride, he dies. Oh, I did not see that movie. Thanks for the spoiler. Or That's like, one of the bad Burton movies. Hmm. Like he is, you know, brought into the death world. Instead of the other coming, way yeah. Okay. In Corpse Bride, he's practicing his wedding vows while holding on to a branch. <laughs> but the branch is like somehow... Ca- oh, he puts the ring on a branch. And that counts as marrying her. So he gets yanked down into the underworld. Obviously. It's a weird movie. So uh, back to Beetlejuice. Yeah, so they <laughs> summon Beetlejuice. <laughs> Beetlejuice is able to save the Maitlands, but then brings in the little like priest gremlin to start marrying them. The Maitlands are trying to save Lydia because they don't want her getting married to this creepazoid. Fair. I mean, child marriage is a growing epidemic across the world. So they have some shenanigans going back and forth. Beetlejuice is like slapping bolts across their mouths and zippers and things like that. Making sure they can't dispel him. But they are ultimately able to, and he's gone. Well, they're ultimately able to summon a sandworm which Barbara rides (laughs) and eats Beetlejuice. (laughs) Yes! It was... uh, Barbara was sent to Saturn by Beetlejuice. Yes. And then uh, she came back somehow riding the sandworm. Yeah, she burst back into the world. Because the Maitlands, if they leave the house, are on Saturn, but they can still see the house. So she just rides up to where she knows it is because she can see it and busts through. The rules of the underworld confuse me. It's Saturn. The rules of Saturn confuse me. Yeah, so it goes. Okay. So, Beetlejuice is gone, which takes us to point number five. Point five, they raise another couple's child together. So, the Maitlands stay in the house. Yeah, we cut immediately to just... This all-girls school where Lydia Uh, is, like, in a uniform. It's clearly a uniform, but the colors are all darker than everyone else's. (laughs) Yeah, somehow hers is just different. (laughs) It's compromised. It's self-expression within a uniform. Yeah, the school has managed to create a uniform for the goth kids. (laughs) So Lydia comes home, and we see that she's hanging around with the Maitlands, who have redecorated the house the way that they like it. They aren't able to leave the house, so Lydia brings them things like paints for his little model table, and I guess wallpaper for when she wants to put up wallpaper. But Lydia's parents also still live there. Yeah, right. They don't interact with her for the rest of the movie. <laughs> well, kind of. Because like, the Maitlands... It's like a co-parenting thing. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's like all four of them are now raising Lydia together. <laughs> it's great. And it really like is. Barbara and Adam are so cute in how much they care about they her and, like, are. checking in. How'd you do on the biology thing? And they Lydia's studied like, math with her. Yeah, Lydia's like, well, I did badly because I wouldn't dissect the frog. And Adam's like, oh, but how'd you do on the math test that he stayed up and studied with her? And she did really well, so then she gets to fly. They fly her up in the air so she can dance. They ghost power her, so that's her reward. It's gonna be sad as they have to watch her age and die while they stay the same. This is true. <laughs> because immortality is a curse, in my opinion. Oh, it totally is. So... If she dies, would she come back to... Is it only the people who die not of natural causes that come back? It's very unclear. And it will never be clear. And there is 
some throwaway comment that kind of implies not all undead people are tied to a specific location. I think one thing is that you have to feel very heavily tied to a particular place, like the Maitlands did with their to house. their home, yep, yep, yep. That makes so sense. it's conceivable that Lydia would also be pulled in that way. But who knows? She's got a long life ahead of her, hopefully. If she stays away from that dog and that bridge. I'd be very happy that... As a dead person, I could interact with the living because imagine only being able to talk to one person for the rest of your life. But they obviously love each other, so they would have enjoyed being together for eternity. They are cute, but at the same time, it's also just like, sometimes you need a break. All right, so we've talked about Adam and Barbara in the context of Beetlejuice. Do we find their relationship believable? I think so. Uh, yeah, I think so, too. They're it's super cute. hot, nice people. They are. The so, hot thing is true. Like, this is Baldwin at peak hotness. Gina Davis is looking great. Her hair is uh, closer to heaven, the closer to God. I think the first I ever heard that Alec Baldwin was hot is the bubble episode of 30 Rock when they make a joke that he used to be very hot. And I was just like, oh, that's funny. And then my mom was like, no, he was like, hot. In yeah. the past. Well, that was the thing. So after this, Burton is making Batman, and he tells Warners that he wants to bring one of the guys from Beetlejuice on to be Batman. And Warners is like, oh, you want Alec Baldwin to be Batman? Amazing. Go for it. And he's like, no, I want Michael Keaton. <laughs> what an interesting choice. Yeah, and that was like the original like massive fan internet backlash. The internet barely exists, but everyone's like, Michael Keaton, do they even understand Batman? And now we've got Cedric Diggory. Yo. Pattinson is a great casting choice for Batman. I cannot wait. At the same time, that first Batman is not about Batman. So... No, it's a Joker movie. Yeah, it's a Joker movie. So I feel like anyone probably would have been fine. Because the movie is not that much about Batman. But I love Keaton's take, which is just that Batman is an insane person. Yeah, because it... Who else would dress up as a bat? You have to be an insane person to become Batman. Right. He has no powers. He just is... I'm rich and I'm going to go insane and dress up as a bat and punch people. So on that note, if we had to rate the romance between Adam and Barbara Maitland <laughs> on a 10-point scale where zero is totally unbelievable and 10 is totally believable, where would you put it? Eight? Yeah, I don't think it's a 10 because it's too perfect. Yeah, it's like, okay, spend some time apart. Please. Yeah. I feel like it works for the movie that it's so mm-hmm. idyllic, but it becomes an unbelievable level of happiness in a relationship. Like, if it wasn't Beetlejuice, it would just be them living that life. And being very supportive and in love with each other. And you would and get sharing sick of it similar very hobbies. Quickly. Yeah, but that wouldn't be a story. They wouldn't make that movie. Yeah. So I. Not everyone's life is a movie. I'm leaning towards like an eight or yeah. a nine. Like, I'm doing it nine. Is nine. Nine, yeah. Because it is believable, but I do think too perfect is a thing in movies. Yeah. All right. Do you think Adam and Barbara are dateable? Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Heck yeah. Two hot people, yes. <laughs> if you had to pick one person in the movie to date, who would it be? I'm assuming everyone is going for the little priest gremlin. I was thinking of Juno. She's a You like boss. that no-nonsense bureaucrat She's a attitude? She's bitch, yes. I was thinking of the person, the actress who wears a giant bow during the dinner scene that has no lines. <laughs> Something about her just really speaks to that me. That whole dress was beautiful. Oh. She does seem like your type. Yeah. <laughs> I, of course, am going with Barbara Maitland. She rules and will be my second wife. Lame. And Midge is always the girlfriend. Yep. You- uh... Adam and Barbara stay together forever into eternity. (laughs) Because they are forced to. (laughs) There is no other option. Now, as I'm sure you all know, this movie, of course, has been made into a musical. It premiered in Washington, D.C. and then moved to Broadway, where it was nominated for a number of Tony Awards. Um, I've heard it's good. I've heard some fun things. I've heard some less fun things. I've heard mixed reviews. You're like, eh, it was fun. I know very little about it. Yeah, same. I was wondering, as an alternative, since the answer here is yes, and it's not a surprising yes, should there be a second Beetlejuice film? I just need some explanations of everything. How does it work? How does the ghost work? I think no. Why not? I like that the world is undefined. I think Beetlejuice as a character works more sparingly used. It's the Jack Sparrow problem. Yeah, Mm. and they would want to make it more about Beetlejuice because he is the part that works. But he only works because he is not in the movie very much. Right, he's like the fifth or sixth lead of this movie. Right, so I think I lean towards no because I don't think there's a world in which... I mean, if they made a movie that was about another four or five people and then made Beetlejuice in it for only 17 minutes again, maybe, but I just don't see that happening and I don't think we need it. 
See, I want the spinoff with Juno and just seeing all of her cases. She's so got- you want like a procedural about yes, the underworld. About See, Juno. I would watch love that. a TV show procedural about Juno dealing with the idiots that she has to deal with in with her case. With Mariska Hargitay as her assistant. Ugh. As the flat person? <laughs> no, that's just the, he's the office uh, jokester, obviously. He's played by Ice-T. Okay. <laughs> So, as I'm sure you can imagine, there have been moves to make a sequel to this because it made a ton of money and involved multiple iconic characters with Beetlejuice and Lydia Dietz. Shortly after this movie came out, Burton commissioned a script which was referred to as Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian, in which the Dietzes are developing a resort in Hawaii and have to deal with all of that and also Beetlejuice is there and there's like Hawaii ghost stuff and Beetlejuice wins a surfing contest and so it's like you got a picture of Beetlejuice but like on a surfboard I'm pretty sure this is just the plot of a Scooby-Doo movie so that thing circled for a while as a possible movie obviously never got made Burton and Keaton kept getting attached to different projects and it died in the late 90s in part because Winona Ryder got too old but then in 2011 Seth Graham Smith of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies got hired to write a sequel and Keaton Burton and Winona Ryder all said that they would do it and had been like talking it up a lot but it never went anywhere and as of this past spring Warner's confirmed that it is no longer in development probably the right choice i am glad yeah it's for the best (laughs) really warner brothers go the route of juno pd sorry no juno what's the name of the uh underworld office did never mind one we'll get the juno procedural that the people want i mean warner brothers television most recent production that i've seen was a what if (laughs) a great piece of television so if anyone could do it it's warner brothers television all right there we go that's it done (laughs) signed sealed delivered Next week, we're watching a movie called The American President, which I don't really know anything about, so I think Will should introduce it. Oh, I love The American President. It's an Aaron Sorkin movie. It's about Michael Douglas as the president falling in love and also dealing with the problems of the country. Yeah, that sounds like an Aaron Sorkin movie. Yeah, so this was his project that ultimately led to The West Wing. Okay, I was wondering which came first, chicken or the egg? Martin Sheen is the chief of staff in this. (laughs) And then later, of course, is the president in The West Wing. It's a really fun movie. I'm really excited to have a conversation about it. All right, until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at LoveTheLovePod. And you can email us questions or movie suggestions at LoveTheLovePod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps other people to find the show. All right, last question. Josh, besides committing sexual assault, because that is a bad thing. (laughs) Bad advice. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? If you love someone, die with them so you can be together for eternity. That does not sound healthy. Is that dating? (laughs) Will? (laughs) I was going to say, find a weird hobby that you can sit around at home and do. They're really into decorating their house and Adam's model train. My advice, look within the New York art scene for your Delia Deets. (laughs) All right. Well, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. And I'm black. So So between between the the three three of us, us, we know everything there is to know about romance. (laughs) Bye. Tally me banana.